Ladies and gentlemen and Corner Kick fam, welcome back. It is the middle of May, and I was sort of reminded this morning as I realized that it's the middle of May that in most years we'd be just about done with the European soccer year, but we're still dealing with the after effects of COVID scheduling. And of course, next season doesn't get any better uh, with the World Cup break taking place in November and December. But I digress because I'm Nathan Strauss. And I am joined by a man who did not hit seven three-pointers this afternoon at TD Garden. Although he is tall enough to probably make the NBA. It's Caleb Rhodes. Oh, yeah. I, I, I wish that my parents had you know put me in, in basketball when I was a kid. Although at the same time, I didn't really have any height to write home about until about sophomore or junior year of high school. So it may have been too little, too late. But yes, happy, happy to be back. With you. We're also joined by a man whose team picked up some silverware yesterday in the most boring cup final uh, since the Euros in 2016. It is Nick Vinden. I don't know. I thought it was a pretty entertaining nil-nil as the Carabao Cup was as well, but I guess we can get on to that. My parents did put me into basketball when I was a kid. Well, you and were like a multi-sport you. athlete as a child, which is kind of wild to me. Yeah, let me tell you, I was I was a fairly average basketball player, but the highlight of my basketball career was when I went to a basketball clinic um, at the TD Garden, and I got to play. This is very niche, so this is <laughs> already already diving into niche territory. Did you play with the White Mamba or something like? I that? I sure did. <laughs> <laughs> I played. I went one v one with the White Mamba, Brian Scalabrini, who also has some very Caleb Rhodes' vibes. At least in terms of his uh, his hair color, the ginger, the ginger, yeah. yeah. So that's my like one basketball claim to fame. So Brian Scalabrini and the rare, the rare, very, very unlikely and rare instance that Brian Scalabrini listens to this podcast. I'm sure, you know, the mere mention of my name is going to send shivers down his spine. Do well, you that guys remember me. when? Oh, you might be bringing this up, Nathan, but there was that story like three years ago or something where. You know, he was just playing around in some some random gym somewhere in Massachusetts and some high schoolers challenged him and Brian Scalabrini just destroyed them. Um, and it was very amusing. And it's just a reminder. Yeah, that well, he did NBA more. players are are, are are better than us. Well, he actually did more than that. So after that, he set up basically like an open cup where he recruited like the best like pickup basketball players, like all of the ringers and like the YMCA leagues and stuff who thought they could beat him uh, into this tournament. And I think like over the course, he would play them all at like 21. And I think he got like four points scored against him after playing like 10 different guys. And the quote that he gave after the fact was, um, people forget that I'm a lot closer to Kobe than you guys are to me, which is, I think, a very good reminder of how we like look at athletes. Which is but elite, an elite quote. Yeah. First of all, it's sick. Also, like we forget that like Scal was like a, a, a one of the top 10 players in college when he was at UCLA and then ended up having a very successful like journeyman NBA career just because he looks like a middle-aged dad who's like mowing the lawn doesn't take away from the fact that he would absolutely like body the shit out of you. Yeah, I mean, it's the Thomas Muller argument, right? Just because someone looks like they teach uh, geography in high school doesn't mean they're not a level athlete. I mean, or like, or like, I am terrified. I'm terrified about what kind of geography Thomas Muller is teaching. (laughs) We really got to look at the borders. (laughs) 
on, yeah, of all sauce <laughs> Lorraine. Go yeah. check out all sauce Lorraine and make sure it's all in the right spot. Um, Anyways, but, I'm sorry to uh, to to get us off track at corner corner ball corner three. You can check out our our, our new incoming basketball podcast. Corner yeah, we three for we're, we're now a media takes. network. It's the uh, it's the corner network. Corner three, corner kick. Are there any others? Corner bat. Corner bat. Is that a baseball thing? Well, it would be a. Oh, the hot corner, because that's another name for third base. Yeah, the hot corner. Hot corner. A hot tag for wrestling. Hot tag. Well, corner corner oh. drop kick for okay. wrestling, if you do that to you. Anyways, Nathan, let's, uh, shall we? <laughs> yeah, let's get this. Yeah, so, so, so we all watched, we all gathered together in our rightful place um, to watch a cup final, as we've been doing for years now, on Saturday in the FA Cup final. It was Chelsea-Liverpool. Um, you know, obviously this is Chelsea's last chance for some silverware this year. And the big news, I guess, was Salah getting taken off with an injury about 30 minutes in. But this game was, I'd say, like, fairly destined for extra time. And we sort of realized this, like, 10 minutes into the second half. Uh, and then the, we, we got some action in extra time. Uh, shout out Jordan Henderson, who played a full 120 minutes, uh, which was was pretty impressive. But, uh, you know, Liverpool came away with a win. Nick, I don't know if you have any big takeaways from this game, aside from the fact that, you know, it's another trophy for, uh, for Klopp as he climbs his way up the, the list of all-time Liverpool managers. Yeah, I think in reflecting on the two cup finals that we've played against Chelsea this season, I think this game was definitely a better performance overall from from Liverpool than the Carabao Cup final, which kind of felt like a basketball match in which no team was putting the ball in the back of the net. This game definitely had instances like that, but I think there were far greater spells of dominance for Liverpool in this game, particularly in the regulation 90 minutes. I think they dominated the first 30 minutes of play. You know, you had the chance, you had the Trent Alexander-Arnold, you know, outside of the boot pass into the path of Luis Diaz, where he probably should have converted. You know, Diogo Jota misses a few chances when he comes on. Um, obviously, Christian Pulisic uh, missed a handful of chances in this game. But I, I think Liverpool pretty much had most of, I would say, the the key moments in this game that they weren't able to finish. And I thought Chelsea played admirably. I thought, you know, their substitute, Thomas Tuchel, did some really interesting work off the bench to try and get them, you know, back into the game. But yeah, by the time that, by the time that extra time rolled around, you could see that both teams were really dead on their feet. And this was, you know, indicated after the game when, you know, we learned that Virgil Van Dyke was taken off in before extra time as kind of just a mere precaution, and Liverpool had an eye towards their game against Southampton. And I think, Caleb, you said something after Costa Simikas, the Greek scouser who has now written his name into Liverpool folklore, scored the winning penalty. You said that this game really articulated the strength of Liverpool's squad and the strength of their system. And I think you were really right when you said that. I think this game showed that Liverpool have such a defined style of play at this point that they can really plug and play really anyone in their squad into one of these, one of these roles and they'll perform admirably i think fabinho was was a pretty big miss in this game but jordan henderson as nathan said played a really really strong 120 minutes and he's a player who's come under a lot of criticism from the liverpool fan base this season uh, for his lack of uh, real you know control on the ball uh but i thought you know overall this is a performance liverpool can really be really proud of you know jurgen klopp has won every single trophy now 
as Liverpool manager, bar the Europa League, but we didn't really care about the Europa League at Liverpool anymore. And I think this sets the deck really well for Liverpool to claim a third trophy in the Champions League once, you know, Van Dijk, Salah, who went off in this game, but it looks like he just has a, a very, very minor groin issue, and Fabinho are back in the team. Yeah, I think this was, in the end, this kind of worked out as well as it could have for Liverpool. They were able to get through, you know, with injuries to players like Fabinho, they were able to win while sort of taking off Sala, who it sounds like will be fit for the Champions League final, while taking off Van Dijk, who also sounds like he'll be fit. And so to win in penalties after, you know, the mammoth penalty shootout session um, in, in the Carabao Cup, and unfortunately we didn't get to see Kepa uh, uh, this time, was great. And I will say, I thought it was like a pretty good penalty shootout too, like good quality, good saves. Um, I think it's a little tough for Chelsea, who now... Uh, like what have they really done this season? They're kind of in this no man's land, you know, above for now, at least Tottenham and Arsenal, but I wouldn't say have demonstrated that they're really that superior and, and on form. They're, they're kind of probably below them. They're nowhere close to city and Liverpool. Um, they've seemed to have regressed significantly since last year. Their big transfer Lukaku has failed. They're losing much of their defense this summer, I think this would have been, you know, a nice thing to have to salvage what has been a kind of bad season on a lot of fronts, ownership included. Although maybe now with new ownership, they they can kick on to the future. Um, on on Liverpool side, I think, I don't know. I, I was just kind of impressed. I think both teams really missed a lot of chances, but Liverpool didn't let the sort of situation get the better of them. And you know, Nick mentioned you know, what I had said yesterday um, about like the depth and the variety in the Liverpool squad, you know, this is the type of game where I thought we may have seen, you know, Origi come on to try to nick a goal, but he didn't even have to come on. And I think that's kind of the beauty of this team that they, they really do have a lot of different options. And in the end, Klopp, this is kind of another Klopp masterclass. And he is probably with this and, you know, potentially with the Champions League cemented himself as, you know, the greatest Liverpool manager of the 21st century if, if he hadn't done that already. Yeah, I guess um one of the, one of my favorite subplots from this game or really from this match day experience was we, we talked about it a little bit when it happened, but and, and we're going to get into my England slander here, but God Save the Queen is just really not designed for stadiums. Like I, I know like the sort of the playing of the anthem is ceremonial and all of that, but at least the Star Spangled Banner and like, oh, Canada that we could get, you know, for American sporting events or North American sporting events, both of those go dummy hard. Meanwhile, God Save the Queen makes me feel like I should be like kneeling in a pew in like Westminster Abbey or something. But um, obviously big news in England as all of the Liverpool or many of the Liverpool supporters uh, were uh, booing, I guess, the, the various royalty that were on site, including, um, you know, Prince William, who in his role as Prince William is also um, the head of the FA. And that's prompted some very uh, interesting, I guess, discussions in the English press, uh, because I think Liverpool as a club and Nick, I know you've spoken to this in the past, uh, but, you know, for a number of reasons, has a bit of that Barcelona mesque un club about it. And I think that really sort of set the tone for how this day went. Um, you know, obviously playing at Wembley, 
um, but against a London club. And uh, I was pretty pleased with how this game turned out. I thought Liverpool were deserved winners. And I think, Caleb, you're right. Chelsea didn't exactly innovate in this game, uh, although they did innovate by bringing on a player in the 106th minute and then bringing them right off, uh, you know, 15 minutes later. So all in all, another trophy for the Reds. Can we talk about that for a second? Like, do we have more mature theories on the point of bringing Ruben Loftus-Cheek on in the 106th minute? then subbing him out for Ross Barkley is like, is Ross Barkley like historically that good a penalty taker? Is there something I'm missing here? It just seemed, it just seemed odd to me. Well, the weird injury, no, the injury, the the weird thing, the weird thing for me is that it was Ruben Loftus cheek and not like Timo Werner, because if Chelsea really didn't fancy their chances in a penalty shootout, which I think I would have understood given what happened in the league cup uh, and all of that, if they had wanted to bring on, you know, Timo Werner in the 105th minute to exploit, you know, a, a pretty gassed Liverpool midfield and back line and then taking him off for a better, a better penalty taker, that would have totally made sense for me. But instead, they brought but on... here's the thing. Ruben Timo Werner is a really good penalty taker. And I don't understand why Timo Werner wasn't featured at all in this game. And I think that's, you know, for as much as Chelsea really did adapt well in-game to Liverpool's high-press situations. I think this is now two finals in a row where Thomas Tuchel oh my has God. made... I'm sorry. I just opened up transfer markets. Ross Barkley has taken five penalties over the course of his senior career. He has converted on only three of them, and he's missed twice, including once in the Champions League uh, against Jasper Sillison and then once for... Everton back in 2014-15. So he has a bad penalty record. Right. Well, we never know what happens in training when they drill penalties and things like that. I think there's, you know, as Liverpool kind of indicated and Klopp kind of indicated after the match, you know, their penalties is its own sort of science, sweet science in terms of how to prepare for a penalty shootout and, you know, really get your squad ready for that. So I don't really know if we can adjudicate, you know, how good Ross Barkley is based off of five penalties, but it definitely was really bizarre. But what I will say back to my point about Tuchel, is that I think even though he adapted well in game, I think this is now two finals in a row, you know, both the Kepa substitution and, you know, the Timo Werner lack of bringing him into the game, you know, someone who can stretch the field really well. And we've seen him do this, you know, in high pressure situations like he did against Man City in the Champions League final last season, where I don't know if Tuchel has, Tuchel has made like two fatal errors with his bench in two cup finals that I think have, you know, divorced himself from Chelsea from winning another trophy. Yeah. No, it's, I mean, yeah, it's, not, I mean it's not a good performance. <laughs> for no, him. it was it was not great. Um, and of course, now, I mean, I think that probably brings us. Is there anything else that we want to touch upon from this game or can we move on to the Prem? No, just that. Uh, no, let's, let's do the Prem. Which Thomas took a well. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and his family well as well. Yeah. Did you not catch that I said divorce? Yes, yes I did. <laughs> I really did. Uh, uh, I love it. Uh, taking a look at the league right now, uh, this morning, West Ham did all that they could for about 68 minutes. And then in the 69th minute, they scored an own goal uh, and, you know, probably just about dashed Liverpool's last hopes of being able to overtake Man City. Uh, City now have 90 points with one game to play. Liverpool are four points off with two games to play. So City would have to drop points against a Villa side that will have not a whole lot to play for 
uh, in that final game of the season. Other than, you know, Stevie G being a Liverpool legend and, and Coutinho as well. Right. But yeah. uh, we probably don't have to talk about the North London Derby, uh, although maybe we should. Because oh, wait, what do you mean? What do you mean? Like every week for the past few weeks, as as the tide has turned a little for Arsenal, you're like, ah, we can just skip over it. No, I think we should start with the North London Derby. I don't know what you think. I, yeah. I agree. And I know it's technically from like the previous match day. Well, technically it's from match day 22 because um, it was rescheduled for, for COVID, right? Yeah, it was a COVID oh. rescheduling when Arsenal had like zero fit players. Yeah. No, they had, uh, they had many fit players and they had very minute amount of COVID absences and got the game postponed. I remember what happened. Yeah, well, whatever. It, it was played on Thursday and Spurs at home chasing uh, Arsenal down one convincingly, I would say, 3-0. I think they're, you know, the penalty was perhaps a little bit soft. It was a penalty. But I think it was a penalty. I think Rob Holding, uh, I, I don't know what he was doing exactly, but the gap is is now pretty tight. Um, and suddenly the, the top four race is is very much on and Spurs might be honestly the form team in the division and they they score for fun. And Son is now what tied for the lead or just one off Sala for most one goals off, in the yeah. Prem. First time he's cracked 20 goals. Um, the man's the man's brilliant. The man's brilliant. Um, and Spurs are peaking at the right time. And even Conte, who, you know, earlier this season was talking about how bad his team was, had some nice things to say about the squad and talked about how he's seen a mentality shift in the squad. Um, and so we'll see if they get top four. But I get the sense now that even if they don't, he might even stick around. I think this was a masterclass from Antonio Conte in this game. And I think even though he came out after the game and kind of gave like the backhanded compliment slap to Mikel Arteta in the press conference, I think he really showed his experience over the Arsenal manager in this game. And that was because I felt like Spurs didn't really exert that much in winning this game. They kind of got in, they capitalized on the situations they were given. You know, they played reasonably well for the circumstance and for the occasion. They were buoyed by the crowd and they took their chances and they got out. And I think under Conte, we saw him do this against Liverpool at Anfield and they almost got all three points there. We've seen him do this against Man City at the Etihad. And I think in big games, Antonio Conte is someone who knows exactly how to make the most of the squad that he has and the situations that he's given. And they get the job done. And I agree, Caleb. At the end of this game, you know, he went to the center of the field and just like soaked in the adulation from the Tottenham crowd. And there are reports from Fabrizio Romano and others, Alistair Gold, that Antonio Conte is set to sit down and have talks with Daniel Levy at the end of the season. And I don't see any reason or any any possible route for Daniel Levy not to back him fully in the transfer market this summer and kind of hand the keys over to the most elite manager that Spurs have had in God knows how long. Cause I think he really, he kind of, he kind of smacked Arsenal in the face in this game and, and put them in their place a little bit. And it really did kind of feel like that in this game. Yeah. I mean, we were, uh, or Arsenal rather, we're, we're pretty bad. I don't really, I, I think 
and Nick, you got to have the, the nice experience of watching me suffer through this game in real time. But um, it was, I, I think it was this game that really showed more than any other game how even though Arsenal had gotten some pretty decent results with a squad that was thin to begin with, but then, you know, you're without Kieran Tierney for the season, uh, Thomas Partey has been out for around... Uh, you know, 40% of this year, you look at a team that's starting in, in arguably the biggest game in like three years. And you're like, Oh crap. Like this team is starting Cedric Suarez at right back. Your left back is a right back in Tomiyasu. You're starting a midfield two of Xhaka and Elneny and, you know, Eddie and Ketia who had been in a good vein of form was playing up top and Rob holding is one of your center backs. So I'm not, saying this as if to, you know, excuse this performance because Arsenal should have done better and they were playing on the back of four straight wins over Chelsea, United, West Ham and Leeds. But, you know, it makes these last two games so, so, so important. Uh, And right now there's a 60% chance that Spurs finish above Arsenal and a 41% chance that Arsenal finish in the top four because it's still possible that Chelsea drop points. Um, You know, Arsenal have Newcastle and Everton Newcastle don't have all that much to play for. Everton, after today's result, do. So it was a big result that didn't go Arsenal's way. Uh, I thought they were a little hard done by some of the decisions, but I also think that Rob Holding was just shown to you know, not be a first-choice caliber player uh, in this game. So at the end of the day, the worst-case scenario for Arsenal is finishing fifth and getting into the Europa League, which is still an improvement on last year with a young and small squad. But this and other games like dropping three points uh, at Everton earlier this season will be uh, looked back upon with uh, some disgust. Although, yeah, I mean, that's all I have to say about that, I think, really. Looking at other uh, results around the league, it wasn't like the biggest weekend of results. Uh, We do know two of the teams that will be back in the Prem next year and sort of familiar faces from the championship in terms of Bournemouth and Fulham. Uh, But we also now know that two teams who will not be in the Prem next year include Norwich and Watford, which means that the relegation battle is basically a pick one of three between Burnley, Leeds and Everton. We talked about this a little bit the last time we recorded, but Everton today go up one nil uh, to Brentford and then immediately have uh, take a red card and end up losing uh, 3-2, including, you know, us getting a second red card later on in this one. It doesn't seem like Everton are um, quite understanding the magnitude of the task they have right now with their last couple of games. Yeah, at the same time, you know, they do lead that sort of pack of three Everton leads and Burnley with 36 points. Leads are one point behind them on 35, but have played a game more and Burnley are, you know, two points back, currently sitting in the relegation zone, um, having played a game fewer than Leeds with the same amount as Everton. But, you know, I think, you know, two weeks ago, whenever we last spoke, I think Everton, at least, you know, by the probabilities on 538, were the most likely of the three to go down. The order has has somewhat inverted. Um, it's now Everton with only a 9% chance of being relegated. Burnley, 35%, and Leeds, unfortunately, now the sort of favorite of the three, 56% chance to go down. Um, Everton, I think, I think they've, I think they've secured it. Um, 
Although they they clearly, as you said, don't have the right mentality. I think Rondon came on late in the game and then also got a red card. Um, and so they finished the game with nine men. And, you know, the squad doesn't really have enough in it to to support too many people missing, you know, a key final game. But I think the Merseyside Derby is intact for another year. Uh, from what I've seen, I'm, I'm calling it now. Uh, the Premier League goes, goes to Everton. Famous last words right there. Yeah, I think <laughs> the... The real bright spot for Everton is that Dominic Calvert-Lewin is fit to start this last little bit of the season that they have. And he scored a goal today. However, you would think that, you know, with Dominic Calvert-Lewin being back in the side, they'd have someone to kind of like pump the ball up to and he could hold it up a little bit, you know, stop them from playing so much at their end of their defensive end of the pitch. That was not the case. They conceded some really poor goals yet again. Frank Lampard has not really shown any capability onwards from his time at Chelsea and being able to competently coach a defense. And I don't think, you know, the players that he had at his disposal were of any real help. You know, a back three of Seamus Coleman, Braithwaite and Holgate, I guess Mikalenko slotted in there at left back at times. It was maybe like a back four hybrid back three. Still really not ideal when you're trying to stave off relegation. Um, I feel like, okay, so looking at these three teams, they all have, you know, various cases for why they should be relegated. Everton have lost 20 games. That's the most of all three. Burnley have only lost 16 and Leeds have lost 18. Burnley have scored the least amount of goals with 32. And Leeds have conceded the most amount of goals with a whopping 78 goals conceded in the league this season. So I think all three of them have, you know, fairly decent cases to go down. I think Leeds getting that draw today against Brighton is massive, massive, massive for their season. A Pascal strike goal in the 92nd minute. Uh, but I just don't know if they have quite enough in their squad right now, as is with all the suspensions and all the injuries to get across the line. They have a final game. They have two. They have, they have a final game against Brentford, which away, which, you know, they did just beat Everton, but it is a bit better than their previous run of games, which included, you know, Man City, Arsenal, and Chelsea. I just don't know. I really just don't know. I hope Burnley go down because they're the team I would rather see Leeds and Everton in the Premier League for another season. And I think Everton are going to be back in this position next season so we can enjoy this conversation all over again. But I just think Leeds at the moment are probably the favorite to go down as is. Yeah, and I mean, if they hadn't gotten, if they had not equalized in the 92nd minute, that would just about have been curtains because they would have been level with Burnley on 34 points with one more game played. Burnley have Villa... Uh, at midweek and then Newcastle on the last day of the season, which kind of augurs favorably for them. Um, you know, the ideal thing for Everton would be to either get one or three points against Palace, and that would basically clinch it um, so that they would be safe before having to play Arsenal at the Emirates on the last day of the season, which is the toughest fixture remaining for any of the of the five games left between those three teams. So, you know, the next time that we talk to you, we will know the final table from top to bottom. And, uh, you know, one one other league that I think we can't quite definitively say anything about yet is Serie A, because that's a league that will be decided completely on the final match day. We know it'll be one of the two Milan teams, uh, but right now AC Milan two points up on Inter Milan heading into the final match day in Italy, which is next Sunday, the 22nd as all of the big five leagues wrap up on that day. But Inter visit uh, Sampdoria 
while AC Milan, uh, or pardon me, Inter hosts Sampdoria, while AC Milan, who have that two-point cushion, visit Sassuolo. That's going to be an interesting uh, and a pretty nervy 90 minutes, I think, in Italy, um, you know, between those two teams to duke it out for the title. Yeah, it's it's so nervy. Um, Inter, of course, now flying high after beating Juventus in the Coppa Italia final um, 2-4 in extra time um, earlier this week. I, I, you know, Milan have, unlike last season, where they couldn't quite keep up, you know, the pace and they couldn't quite keep eking out wins, they have got it done, you know, this this whole kind of like key stretch towards the end. And today was probably, you know, one of the most impressive wins for them um, in a somewhat cagey match. They were able to beat Atalanta 2-0 to maintain this slimmest of slim um, two-point leads. And right now, I think destiny is really in their hands. Sassuolo are a better team than Sampdoria. They're in 11th place. Sampdoria are in 16th place. Sassuolo have, you know, some really good attacking threats. Um, Skamaka, um, who's been getting some buzz, and then um, obviously Berardi as well who, as usual, has been, you know, one of the most underrated players in Europe this year. This guy has 15 goals and 14 assists. Um, so for reference, that means he has more goal involvement in, you know, his league than Vinicius does. Um, so that's just impressive. But I, you know, while we're making these sort of key predictions, I think Milan get the job done. And, and take the dub. And I think both sides will be very happy, you know, with a trophy apiece this year. The only person who might be a little upset maybe is Chalhanoglu, who, of course, you know, switched blue or red for blue this year. But I, I have my money on Milan to sort of, you know, finish out the season. What do you guys think? Yeah, I think a huge point to consider here is that AC Milan didn't even drop into the Europa League after finishing fourth in the champions in their champions league group with atletico madrid and liverpool so i think that has been a huge help for them this season even though i bet it was disappointing for them in the moment i think not having european football excuse me not having european football for the back half of this season has been really really a massive positive for them just in terms of keeping their squad as fresh as possible no they don't really rotate all that much milan they have a pretty set back four and Hernandez, Tamori, Kalulu, and Calabria. You know, the Kessie and Tanali midfield has been pretty set in stone as well. They just have a lot of variability going forward with Rafael Leao, Giroud, Ibrahimovic, Salamakers. I think there's a lot going on. Messias, who has really exploded onto the scene this year. Rebic, you know, Alessandro Florenzi on loan from Roma. I think they have a very, very deep squad for a team that's not necessarily competing on a lot of fronts right now. And I think that has really been a huge plus for Pioli as he does. As I think last season you could see that that team was sort of tiring towards, towards the back end of the season, as Caleb kind of indicated. I think it's tough. I think Inter, mm. Sassuolo have really done a poor job against the big teams in Serie A this season. You know, in fact, ironically, I think the only team that they have beaten of like the big Italian teams is Inter Milan 2-0 away from home in February. So they're kind of like, incidentally handing uh, playing a part and handing this Serie A trophy over to AC Milan. 
I just I, I just don't know. I really don't know. It's tough to call it. I hate calling it. I think AC Milan have been so consistent this season in Serie A that I gonna I'm gonna slightly I'm gonna I'm gonna put my cards slightly towards them and I'm going to say that AC Milan win their first scudetto in over ten years. I'm gonna say I think that AC Milan draw on the last day and that Inter end up winning the league on goal difference, uh, which is going to be or head to head rather and then goal difference, which is going to be wild. Um, but also, can we say a brief RIP to Venezia, whose stint in Serie A lasted no more than one season? And of course, they have a number of, um, you know, external constraints like their small stadium and relatively small stature. But they were relegated after losing 11 games in a row. Um, so I, yeah. I, I, I think they'll be back at some point. I don't think they spent as wisely as they could have. Um, but also, I understand that it's a, it's a tough business to get promoted from Serie B maybe a little bit before their plan, you know? Yeah, I think, I think what they have done a really good job, though. Remember, this is a team that I don't know if they've ever been in Serie A or if they have been it hasn't been for a very long time they have developed a really good brand right i think their social media which at least i follow is is really good i think they're very candid um they also are kind of like a lifestyle brand too which is kind of fun you know i think they brought in players like busio which brings in an american audience obviously they have an american owner as well and I think, you know, we've seen a lot of clubs in Italy, especially, you know, the ones that are bouncing between Serie B and Serie A. A lot of them have, you know, major financial problems and a lot of them are sort of very poorly managed. And they also just don't have that big of an appeal outside of Italy. And that definitely feeds into that problem. But I think they are building a, just a good foundation for this club. And yeah, maybe it was a little early for them to have their Serie A debut, but I expect we'll see more of them in the future. Um, and I think that they could become, you know, like a Serie A regular um, in, you know, the next five years or so. Well, we will certainly keep an eye on that um, and, and wish them well as they go down to um, Serie B. Meanwhile, uh, some transfer news involving Italian clubs is today Juve confirmed that uh, Paolo Dybala will not be returning to the club, meaning he can basically take his pick of where to end up next. And I think the two biggest teams that have been linked to him so far are Arsenal and Inter. And I think it's a home run transfer for either club that gets him. You know, he, I think he might not score goals at a rate that he once did. Um, you know, he obviously had those incredible years where he scored 22 goals in 2017 um, and he scored 19 goals in 2016, but, um, you know, he's scored over a hundred goals for Juve in 300 games and on a free, I think he would be an excellent pickup for a team like Inter who play with two strikers or for a team like Arsenal, um, you know, who use their striker, um, more as a tool for linking up than as a traditional, you know, out and out, uh, number nine. So I guess that's a, a pretty big name being allowed to leave on a free, which is sort of very un Juve like in terms of how this business was was carried out. Yeah, I think here you're just seeing a player in a club that really can come to an agreement on the next stage of his contract. And I think this is sort of like a bit of a COVID situation too. You know, Juve are one of the clubs, one of the big massive European clubs that have suffered a 
a lot financially. They had begun to really suffer financially before COVID, and then COVID really exasperated a lot of their problems. And Paolo Dibola is someone who is on a massive, massive deal with Juve, and I'm sure, you know, they're looking at their squad and they're thinking they can, you know, try and rebuild a bit without him and focus a little bit more on a bit more savvy signings as they as they have been doing in Locatelli, in Weston McKinney, and players such as that. But I think for you know Beppe Marata, it seems like has been meeting with Dibola's agent this week to kind of iron out the terms of the agreement. I think it makes a lot of sense for Dibola to go to Inter. You know, he doesn't need to change leagues. This is the league that he's been playing in for over a decade now, since he started at Palermo. And under a coach like Inzaghi, who can kind of plant him right into that three at the back formation, that three five two or that three four three. I think he's a perfect upgrade on a player like Joaquin Correa or someone who can even enhance Joaquin Correa by playing alongside him. I think Dibola, you know, underneath the likes of Lautaro Martinez or playing alongside him is really interesting as well. I think he brings another dimension to that Inter attack. I think it's a very fluid move for Dibola, a very fluid move for Inter. And I certainly think it makes a bit more, even though I would love to see Dibola in the Premier League, I think it makes a bit more of a career. It makes a bit more career sense for him than moving to know a club like Arsenal that is very much you know even though they are I think trending upwards right now still are very much in flux yeah I think Dibola you can think of him almost at least on the inter scenario here kind of like an upgrade on like Alexis Sanchez Um, like I think he's another kind of in-between attacking talent who's definitely you know past his peak um, but can offer quite a bit um, and also knows the league pretty well. So I also think that he'll probably go Inter over Arsenal. However, I agree with Nathan that I think he could make a, a good fit for that kind of you know number 10 role at Arsenal, especially um, considering they just kind of need some more like through the middle, you know, striker center forward players to, to provide options. And there's obviously another striker who is very much on the market, although not on a free uh, as Robert Lewandowski has basically confirmed that he wants, basically confirmed that he wants to leave um, Bayern, and you know you're talking about, if not Kareem Benzema, probably the greatest goal scoring uh, striker of the last decade. Uh, I mean, you can make the argument that between him, Ronaldo, and Benzema, there's your your top three outside strikers. Suarez. Of the last decade, you think you think even Luis with Suarez's... Suarez has scored way more goals than Benzema, and more Aguero. consistently over the last decade. Can I get Aguero in here as well? Yeah, ah, uh, I just think the way Aguero dropped off because of injury in the last three or four years. Anyways, point point being, Robert Lewandowski, who was can I know... can I give you Divock Origi? <laughs> right. Um, well, Robert Lewandowski Andy is coming Carroll. off of a Lewandowski is coming off of a 34 goal, Bobby 35 Zamora. goal year. Okay, guys. Uh, yeah, yeah, Sonogo. Um, Robert Lewandowski coming off of a 35 goal season in the Bundesliga, uh, his lowest goal tally since going to Bayern Munich in the league was 22 goals. His last three years in the Bundesliga, he has 34, 41, and 35 meaning he has scored more than a goal per game for them in the Bundesliga in every season. He's also, you know, two years removed from having a 15-goal season in the Champions League. He had 13 Champions League goals this year. Even at the age of 33, uh, you know, he'll be 34 right around the start of next season. He is still one of the best strikers in the world. And, um, you know, the places that 
he could land are numerous, but uh, it seems like Lewandowski's camp and Barcelona have some mutual interest. And whether or not that's being used as a decoy, I am not entirely sure. But Caleb, I know you just signed or Barcelona just signed, you know, some a big name striker last window. Do you think that there is like any fire to this, the smoke of the Lewandowski rumor? I think there could be. I just I just don't think it makes a ton of sense because um, I think it would disrupt the kind of, you know, in general, younger players at the club moving in. Like, I don't think Albo is ever meant to be like a quote unquote, even medium term option. Um, I also am not sure we can really afford someone like Lewandowski right now. I mean, like there are talks of us having to sell players like Frankie Dion. Right. And so I don't really understand how you square that with, you know, a massive wage packet. Um, I do think that in general, you know, it's a bit of a bit of, you know, a smokescreen um, or he's just using Barcelona. I actually think if I could pick a team for Lewandowski to go to that I think would be sick. I think if he also went to Inter, that would be ridiculous because... <laughs> Um, well, just because I, I think the, the Lautaro score like 50 goals. Yeah. Well, it's like Lautaro Lukaku, you know, like Lautaro Jekko and now like Lautaro Lewandowski. Um, a, we get the LL combo again. And B, I think it's kind of like the small, big, you know, two man combination. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I think it would be cra- It's not going to happen. Right. No, but I think it would be unreal. Or uh, hear me out. He gets a he gets a text message on his phone. You know, he's at the Camp Nou. He's getting ready to sign, you know, potentially his Barcelona contract or he's meeting with Joan Laporta, who we know Laporta loves his big name signings as much as the next man. But, you know, in the meeting, Lewandowski gets a text message and he looks down and he thinks, you know, what is this? Like, I thought I shut my phone off. You know, is this really important? Am I am I going to check this right now? But he can feel something emanating from his phone. So he, he picks up his phone, he checks it. And on, on the screen, it's a text message from his father figure, his mentor, his, his, his coach at Borussia Dortmund, and the person who brought him up from obscurity and made him the player that he is, Jurgen Klopp, on the phone saying, come home. Come home, not to Dortmund, not that, that home, but come home to me. Come home to my warm embrace at well, Liverpool uh- Football Club. I, I, so I really like that idea. I do think that it kind of, I, in that signing would in a way sort of demonstrate the end of an era. I think it would sort of close or it would put an end date on, I guess, like the Liverpool window, just because I think FSG have done a really good job of bringing in players who turn out to be saleable assets later on down the line. And that's, I think, what is making this Salah and Mane transfer slash contract discussion so interesting as well because they've been able to get such a good cash flow from that end but i mean who would be unopposed to that i mean aside from the rest of the premier league who would be unopposed to seeing uh you know Lewandowski lead the line with you know salah and mane alongside him it would also be a nice sort of foil to the last transfer that i guess we'll talk about being you know holland to city which got confirmed this last week as well because then you would have i guess like twin stars binary stars you know, moving from Dortmund and Bayern to City and Liverpool, um, continuing their sort of duopoly over the league. So I would love to see that. 
Um, I, I kind of wonder if he'll just end up renewing at Bayern anyways, and if this is just a ploy to get more money in his final contract from, uh, you know, Salhamzidic, who I isn't like thought of in highly regards by some of the German press, but either way, certainly be a name to watch. And also, I'm not entirely sure how much money Bayern can legitimately get for him because he has only one year left in his deal and he wants to leave. But at the same time, you know, well, he that's why I think he's really, yeah, that's why I think he's really threatening walking this time. I think there's a bit. I think it's definitely a little bit of a smokescreen in terms of like incorporating Barcelona. We know Barcelona love to make, you know, like their big name brand signings. And I think Barcelona would love to have, particularly Laporta, would love to have a player like Lewandowski at an unveiling at the Camp Nou. I think, you know, Lewandowski, we got to check whether or not he uses Apple Music or Spotify. That could really come down to uh, whether or not he makes the move or not. But I think this... I think this is less of a smokescreen in terms of I think he he could be a little bit more serious about leaving just in terms of the contract situation. But I could also see it being, you know, a really, really intense leverage situation where he eventually resigns in a comfortable situation with Byron. Yeah. Let's I talk mean, about uh, let's talk about Holland too then in that case. Sure. Because should we hit up Pogba as well? Um but yeah, I mean, Holland I, first. Yeah, I mean, Pogba. So Holland, we knew he was going to be leaving at the end of this season. I think Dortmund knew that this was going to be their last season that they had with him because, um, you know, they adroitly uh, lowered his release clause with each passing year of his contract with Dortmund following his transfer from Salzburg. And so it dipped to around 60 million euros. And Man City, who I think would have spent twice that amount to get Holland, finally get their long term replacement for Sergio Aguero as their number nine of the future. He signed through 2027 for about 60 million plus another 30 million in fees and wages um, to Alfie Holland, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Obviously this is a terrifying transfer because you know, the lack of a true center forward, Gabriel Jesus excluded, who's often been playing from the right has really been the only key or the only part of this city team that could, use improving over the last couple of years since Aguero really started struggling with injury. And now they get basically the best available center forward, not named Kylian Mbappe for a very affordable price. And he should instantly become, you know, a 20 to 30 goal scorer for five years for them in the prem. So my take on this is I think this increases the chances of city winning the champions league. I think it actually weirdly slightly lowers their chances of winning the Prem, you know, like by which I mean, like they go from, you know, 55% to begin with to like 52. Um, Just because I think his style of play is so different than what City do right now in the Premier League, which is this incredibly constrictive, super high possession style. Holland, a lot of his goals come on the counter, you know, amongst top sort of strikers in downhill running. Yeah, he doesn't have like as many like touches in the box. Um, Like he's kind of like he he builds up this momentum and his speed is 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 frightening given like his, you know, size. Um, But I do wonder like how much he'll mesh, you know, on like a game to game Premier League basis in terms of an versus like the sort of slight loss of control in possession. I still think he'll score like 35 goals a year. I just do think 
philosophically, he's not like the perfect mesh for this team, if that makes sense. And so for that reason, I think he, he makes them slightly less likely to win the Prem, even though they're still very likely. But he gives them that extra little bit in the Champions League that they've been missing. And that in like a one-off, you know, you need to stretch the game. You hit a ball over the top and he finishes kind of deal to put a team through. That's an interesting, that's an interesting take because I think Dortmund actually do play a fairly, you know, possession style of play, or at least they have this last year. And in a lot of their Bundesliga games, it's just been in their bigger ties where they've been super outclassed that they end up playing more on the counter. So I'm actually a bit more bullish on him meshing with City than you are. I think it's important, you know, he hasn't even turned 22 yet. And, uh, you know, he's already scored over well over 100 goals at the senior level. So I wonder a little bit about how much his style has been, um, I guess, enforced by the type of teams that he's played for. Because, you know, Salzburg are notoriously a counterattacking team, especially in the Champions League where he sort of had his breakthrough and now with Dortmund. But regardless, you know, since 2018, when he was 17 and 18 years old, he has scored at over a goal per game clip across, you know, the, the Austrian Bundesliga, the German Bundesliga and the Champions League not to mention the fact that he's a goal per game player for Norway as well. So, you know, I think it's important to remember that his style of play is still very much developing as well. And, you know, if there's one thing that Pep has proven to be good at, it's that he makes players uh, able to fit into his mold. And uh, Holland is certainly young enough and talented enough to be malleable in that way. Although I do like your take that it makes them more likely to win the Champions League as well, because I certainly can get behind that. I think, yeah, Nathan, you make the key point here, which is that Erling Holland is only 21 years old. And Pep Guardiola, you know, for all the the criticism that he can kind of come over, come under in his job at Man City, I think we have seen him really develop a lot of players in his, you know, fairly long tenure at the club by now. You know, he certainly has had the purchase power, but I think you've seen Kevin De Bruyne really come on leaps and bounds under Guardiola. You know, he was he was an incredible player under Pellegrini, but I think Guardiola has taken him to another level. Obviously, you know, the emergence of Phil Foden under Guardiola, you know, Riyad Mahrez into a world-class winger. You've seen Raheem Sterling really come into his own under Guardiola. I think, I think Holland has so many years ahead of him at the top of the game for him to keep learning is a really scary prospect and for him to keep learning under a manager like Pep Guardiola who is so detail oriented almost a perfectionist and I think Holland in and of himself is someone who pushes himself incredibly incredibly hard and pushes his teammates around him incredibly hard and I think one of the criticisms of this Man City team is that I think they lack a bit of personality and Erling Holland is going to add a add personality in abundance to this side. I think he's going to be exactly what they need to, you know, they're already going to win the Premier League this season, in my opinion, but he's going to be exactly what they need to take them to another dimension just in terms of their play and what they're able to do on the pitch. And that's a very scary thing. And, you know, I think <laughs> you we wonder why, you know, Pep thinks everyone roots against Manchester City and, and this might be, might be a reason why, you know. Although yeah. despite the fact that in his words, you know, everyone everyone uh, is against Man City, um, including the media, which is a ridiculous statement, um, as we've talked about his long-term heel turn. Um, but we mentioned Paul Pogba before, 
his marriage or I guess like remarriage to United, I think will end up going down as a failure. I mean, he had a couple of, he would always, he would have moments, but between, I think the personality, the managerial, I guess, uncertainty at that club and I guess like other, like off the pitch circumstances, it never quite clicked. And the two teams that he's been linked with again on a free are going back to Juve um, or joining up with PSG. And I think you can make a compelling argument for both. For PSG, you know, Pogba has always performed well for the French national team. And that's sort of, he is a little bit, you know, like Gareth Bale in that way where he always shows up um, for Le Bleu. But for Juve, and also, you know, you get to dominate Ligue 1 and, you know, play 30 games a year, win some silverware, live in Paris, etc. And for Juve, I think it would be a little bit more of a challenge. He would instantly be an upgrade on Rabio and Zakaria. And obviously, he has some fond memories of uh, Stadio della Alpi. It's not Stadio della Alpi. It hasn't been that for like 10 years. Um, what? Allianz, Allianz Arena in Turin? Allianz Stadium. Allianz Stadium? the Allianz Stadium. Sorry, Allianz I just went... I just, I, Bayern. I just went like full on like FIFA 2010 with Stadio della Alpi. So I've got to fix that in my mind. But, um, you know... Obviously, he's another marquee name leaving for free. And this is probably his last big move, right? Yeah, I think definitely this is his last big move. I thought he would go to PSG just because that felt like kind of the the safe play. I think going to Juve right now is a bit more of a project. But, you know, Max Allegri is probably someone who he's, he's a lot closer with than, you know, going to PSG and having to integrate into a new league in its entirety. Juve is a club that he really loves. He's familiar with Serie A. He loves Turin and Juventus. I don't know. I think that makes a lot of sense either way. I think him going back to Serie A is a huge is a huge coup for Serie A, which has kind of been lacking, you know, a bit of star power at least on the player side of things since Lukaku left the league. You know, there's certainly a lot of superstar players in that uh, in that league. You know, in terms of you know us being soccer fans, but Paul Pogba is you know a global superstar at this point. So I think him going back to Serie A is good for the league. And I think ultimately, you know, pretty good for his career for him to get out of, you know, the the real, I think, vitriol that has surrounded him in the Premier League, you know, justly or unjustly. And I think a lot of times it's been pretty pointed. And I think a lot of times he's been the best player on the pitch for Manchester United in pretty weak teams. So I think he's just kind of been the victim of circumstance in a lot of things. You know, certainly I think there have been moments where he's let himself down a little bit, but you know, injuries really hampered him in this second spell at United. You know, he did win the World Cup in this second spell. So the quality is definitely there for when he, you know, returns to Serie A and he can be a bit more comfortable. Yeah, I hope he moves to Juventus. I think I think he still feels like he has a little bit to prove. And for that reason, I think going to Juve is just a better move than kind of the the easy comfort of of Paris and I think Juventus are a bit more of just like an interesting project right now like I I honestly like PSG have a kind of Man U-ish feel about them it's just that they're in just such a weak league that they can get away with kind of flailing um in a lot of respects so I hope he goes back to Juventus that's, yeah that's although and I guess like the other the other thing to note is that PSG uh, did not have a midfielder make the league team of the season this year. Uh, the the PSG representatives in that team were 
Mbappe, Nuno Menj, whose move is is confirmed, Marquinhos, and Donnarumma. The PS the the league in midfield team of the season was Dimitri Payet, Aurelien Chouameni, who I think will be on the move this summer to either Madrid or Liverpool or United or City or a team of that ilk, and Seko Fofana of RC Lens, who so good finish. Yeah, so they, good. They, they're, their team sneaky, super talented. Um, they have Jonathan Klaus at right back or right midfield, um, who is 29 years old, but had five goals and 11 assists as a right back this season. Seko Fofana, who I think was was sick for Cote d'Ivoire. Um, and then obviously a Burnley former, tried to sign him. Yeah, former Man City the winter player uh, who, has, who was sick this year. Uh, what a like every year or every two years, Ligue 1 has one of these teams that just like goes dummy hard, uh, despite having like no one like Arnaud Kalimuendo Muinga, who scored 12 goals this season, um, as a, a PSG loanee who he only just turned 20 years old. Um, but I do think there'd be the opportunity for Pogba to instantly improve upon, uh, you know, a PSG midfield that was pretty disappointing, but um, you know. We can, uh, I guess we'll find out more about that. And obviously PSG, I think, will be more readily able to pay him um, the salary that he wants. Although, of course, him not, you know, requiring a transfer fee probably benefits Juve as well. Is there anything else that we want to touch upon before saying good night and so long before, um, I guess, the I final match week of the season? Yeah, I just wanted to, you know, pour one out for for FIFA. Um the game now that FIFA and EA Sports have parted ways, we will no longer be able to say that a song was on the FIFA whatever soundtrack. We now have the mouthful of EA Sports FC. Um, that's what's in the game these days. And it's a little sad. I feel like the, those games have gotten a little stale over recent years. Um, but, you know, I think this portends, you know, more Piemonte Calcio, um, which is just just unfortunate. So I just wanted to, to pour one out for what was an amazing game franchise for like two decades. Um, and now we're in the EA Sports FC and what's PES called now? It's it something else too. It's called like eSoccer or some dumb. Yeah. Yeah. Game, I mean, game's I, gone. Game's but gone. But I mean, I, I do think that from what from what we've seen or from what I read in Tariq Panja's article, FIFA as a game actually won't change that much. No, uh, it's yeah. really the just going to be. Is, yeah. And the thing is, they already have the licensing for most of these clubs and leagues. And I think it was telling that a bunch of the uh, a bunch of the leagues all released like statements this week, um, including all of the big five leagues. So clearly, the next step for EA Sports is just to outbid, uh, you know, Komani for the rights to Barcelona and um, Konami. Oh, Konami, excuse me. Um, you know, teams like Barcelona slash Piemonte uh, slash, you know, whatever the other alternative is, because uh, there's a reason that no one really plays pro Evo. And that's because like FIFA, as far as game mechanics go, is much better. And I would also hope that this maybe prompts uh, EA Sports to maybe invest a little bit more in the non-microtransaction areas of their games because the older that I've gotten and you know the the lesser my ability to like come over to one of your basements and play you guys person to person, um, 
the more I wish that FIFA were a little bit more developed on that end of things, or I guess EAFC were developed on that end of things. So we'll see what happens there, but certainly the end of an all-time, at least named franchise. Yeah, and did you guys see that uh, FIFA in their statement regarding all of this said that they were excited to work on the possibility of developing their own game? Yeah, yeah, that's but gonna that's just a, like a that's gonna be a shit. no. But no, I was gonna say that's gonna be a piece of shit, dude. I mean, but there's, 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 there's like no the, way. Yeah, because that's gonna be the cyberpunk of of soccer games. That yeah, game. and also like FIFA asking for a billion dollars from EA is like a very Doctor Evil type move that also just shows again how FIFA refuses to operate in like any sort of FIFA, uh, you know, Federation Internationale de Football, not EA Sports FIFA. Um, how they refuse to operate with any sort of rational understanding. Um, Dude, they're just, the they're just a cartel. Like, no, like literally, cartel. and they make no, yeah. it makes no sense. This is a move that only benefits EA Sports in the long run. Um, and FIFA, you know, does itself a disservice. So just a, a ridiculous, um, you know, bargaining procedure from people who I think don't really know how to bargain. Yeah, listen, the one thing I will say, EA, I feel like have been kind of experimenting with the more arcadey side, like the NBA Jam kind of vibes and uh and more more of like the arcadey side of soccer video games why not you know listen in 20 in 20 i want to say in 2012 a little video game came out called fifa street that was you know one of the most entertaining sports video games perhaps of all time and i think you know with this divorce between ea sports and fifa i would hope that ea you know takes a look at the landscape and sees that there could be you know, an opportunity for, you know, not some Volta mode bullshit like was on FIFA FIFA 21, which is the worst. Oh, it's terrible. Left a really bad taste in my mouth. But I'm talking about FIFA Street, the return of FIFA Street. Call it like FIFA Street. I don't know. 2K, whatever. That, that 2K, obviously. But call it like FIFA Street, the Resurrection, and, you know, bring it back to the PS5. Just do it. Just do it. Indeed. All right. Well, in that case, we may as well wrap it up here, um, but we will catch you next time when everything has been decided about the Champions League final. I have been Nathan Strauss. Caleb Reds. Shout out Thomas Tuchel's wife. I've been Nick Vinden. And we will see you all next time. <laughs>